Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with both of my co-hosts today, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. Great to be back. Yeah, it's been a while since all of us were together, so it's really nice to have everybody here. Yeah, and we've got an all-host show for you this week. Um, There was just a lot of news, and I think it's better that we all just kind of get everybody caught up on what's going on. Um, Before we start, I did want to just highlight something that came across my Twitter feed, not to do the podcast host reading tweets on his podcast thing. (laughs) (laughs) But do it anyway. You know you want to. As long as you're self-aware. Yeah. Well, thank you, Haley. I, yeah. I mean, I have a pretty high bar for that. But this one, I think, qualifies. Matthew Zeitlin, who's a reporter, used to work for Slate, uh, just tweeted out, no one talks about what a good gig being an expert witness is. The number of vacation homes and college tuitions alone. Ellipsis. You know, I don't think about that a lot, but Me it's neither. not that's, wrong. That's why I it really sparked it. I'm a legal reporter. I should be thinking about this stuff. Especially if you're an in-demand specialty as an expert witness or, you know, like you're an area where there's demand, but there's not a lot of you. That must yeah. be a good a good spot to be in. It made me think of if I quit my job tomorrow and could have my income supplemented, what I could be an expert witness in, in like, I don't know, say six months or something. And if I could just read and do nothing but become an expert, like if you consider the expertise you already have. Would you stick with trade disputes? Is that where you're going to go, I mean, I guess I go, would Alex? have to, right? Which is like the most boring answer, but I guess I'd have to. <laughs> Specifically, like, whether Court of International Trade judges overrule particular market situation determinations in oh, certain Oh, wow. Contexts. I've already clicked out. I'm de- sleeping. I'm, I'm gone. I think my big claim to fame here would be, can I be an expert witness in any of the many, many trials against Bravo celebrities? Yes, Amber. Yes. There's my expertise right there. And Haley, Unfortunately, I know you, yeah. You're about to say Haley could do it too. And you're right, because my next point is there's no scarcity. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I I would also love to lend my really unfortunate and I would say cursed expertise on The Bachelor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah absolutely. To any future. Another area, though, where no scarcity. We've got to really step up our game and get a little more into a, a little more discreet area, I think. I hadn't thought of that when I was considering the prompt about like the amount of people who think they could be good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. But we have, as I said, we have an all host show. There's so much interesting news to get to. We're going to start by talking Tesla again. And I do just want to, I thought that this would be a good time to provide an update in the Musk Twitter Battle that we talked about last week, Jimmy and I, with Leslie Pappas, the Delaware Chancery Court, which we talked about last week, has set a trial for October in that case. That's been fast-tracked. There was a lot of push and pull over when a trial might happen, but it's happening in October, which is pretty quick if you follow corporate litigation at all. Sometimes it takes years for a trial to happen. So we'll, we'll keep you updated on that as needed. But this week, we are talking about a trial where Tesla was found negligible for a fiery crash involving one of its cars, a fiery crash of one of its cars, 
that killed two teenagers in Florida. Um, a Florida jury awarded $10.5 million to the family of the now deceased driver, but it assigned only 1% of the blame to Tesla itself, facing various other mitigating factors. So there's a lot of different nuances here to, to break down. We spend so much time talking about Musk just as like a character, a persona, um, that I am really interested that we're pivoting here to talking about Tesla, the company, particularly because it's such high tech stuff and we don't have a ton of suits that we've seen about Tesla crashes. So what happened here? As you say, Tesla, I just want to be clear, gets sued all the time. There is a stockholder suit that's going on right now. An employment suit, I believe, is also underway. I mean, so they are a company that is highly litigated against and also highly visible. But this, what we're talking about right here, is believed to be the first time that a suit over the crash of a Tesla vehicle has gone to trial. It's believed to be the first time that that has happened. So it's notable that way. The suit was brought by a man named James Riley, who is the father of Barrett Riley, an 18-year-old who died when the Tesla that he was driving hopped a curb, crashed, a fire started, he died, one of his passengers died, and it was obviously a very tragic incident. But we should also say that he was speeding at the time, and recklessly so. He was going 116 miles an hour around a curve that had a 25-mile-an-hour speed limit. So at first glance, you can see how it would be difficult to even plausibly say that a car maker could be liable for such an incident if you're driving that recklessly. But Barrett's father, James Riley, he sued Tesla. He alleged that the crash itself was survivable, but that his son and his friend were killed by a very intense fire that sparked in the car's battery cells. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, everyone who's listening knows, like, Tesla has very, like, sort of cutting-edge batteries, but that is sort of at issue here in what happened after this crash. The other wrinkle is that James Riley had installed a limit. Like, there's a device that you can install on Tesla cars that caps a car's speed, in this case, 85 miles an hour. But that was removed when his son took the car to Tesla for maintenance, basically saying that they were negligent for removing that feature without his consent. So those were the big claims at issue here, that the battery started on fire in a very intense way that is specific to this battery, and also that Tesla removed this sort of limiting feature without his consent. That's what we're talking about. So I, in... No way want to make light of any of this, but my parents would have absolutely loved to be able to cap my speed limit. (laughs) Yes. And I'm kind of glad that that was not a possibility for them uh, (laughs) back in my teenage days. In your early driving days? Indeed. Indeed. It would have been humiliating. They would have capped me at like 25. Obviously. Yeah. But in any event, so you said that the jury did find Tesla liable, but only a tiny bit. Could you walk us through that? Yeah, in fact, like the smallest bit that you can do, which we'll get to in a second. But it's pretty clear that the jury had a lot on its 
plate with this specific set of facts. You have a novelly designed car that is always going to be ripe for people to sue about like whether and to what extent its features and its capabilities work the way they're supposed to. But also a young kid who had a history of reckless speeding, which was also an issue in trial. He had been ticketed before and he was recklessly driving at this time. But, you know, there's a lot going on. The jury held Tesla liable, but it did so with several other parties that were at issue in the case. Now, it apportioned the blame in percentages like a pie, which I like I've been reading up a little bit just to study for this on product liability cases and some other things. I like didn't know that you can actually apportion it by percentages in a legal finding. But Tesla was held just 1% liable for this incident. 90% of the blame was put on the driver, Barrett Riley, now deceased, and 9% on his father, James, who brought the suit. So oh, wow. that's sort of, I mean, it's, it, it, while they found Tesla negligible, it's sort of in only the narrowest terms possible. I'm really interested about how that breaks down now that we have a dollar figure involved. Like, what what happens next with that? I think it was over $10 million that was awarded, right? Yeah, and that's that's kind of where, like, a lot of the focus is going to be here. It was $10.5 million. Not really clear where that money comes from right now. Tesla was 1% liable. And so its attorneys have said, like, immediately, you'll see it in the press if you read a, if you read a news story about this. Their quotes are that they should only be on the hook for 1% of that award, which would be $105,000. 90% of the blame was put on the driver himself, who is now deceased. And so it's not, we don't really know where that will come from. I suspect there might be follow-on litigation there. I don't know that for sure. This was just a couple of days ago. And we'll keep an eye on that. But on a broader level, any lawsuit involving Tesla cars, especially one that gets to trial, is a huge deal. So it actually, in this instance, in this instance specifically, the company is facing a separate lawsuit from the passenger who died in the wreck, a teenager um, as well as Barrett, uh, named Edgar Montserrat Martinez. And a trial there is set this fall. Uh, There are also various suits pending about Tesla crashes, some of which involve the company's autopilot uh, self-driving feature, not at issue in this case. But that's crucial to the company's business model. Elon Musk has said, like, if we don't perfect self-driving, the stock price effectively goes to zero if we can't get that because other companies will make electronic vehicles. But uh, it's a huge story, um, and we will definitely be monitoring any you know, subsequent litigation that derives from, uh, from incidents like this. Let's switch gears here. I've got quite a doozy for us this week. Um, <laughs> this story has it all. Hate mail, bad blood between neighbors, allegedly fabricated DNA, and a connection to Marvel. Oh, and well, now I'm in. <laughs> accusations that New York law firm Kasowitz was involved in framing their client's neighbor. 
I mean, just a slight preview for the rest of the show. I thought I had the wildest stories this week as our next news story. And there's a offbeat we're going to talk about. But I don't know, Haley, are we competing? You might be giving me a run for my money here. It is a wild show. Yeah, so... It's a wild right, show. So you gave a lot of teasers there. Yeah. What in the world is going on? Of course. So Kasowitz is fighting a malicious prosecution suit over all of these things. What's going on here is plaintiff Laura Perlmutter says the firm framed her and her husband for hate mail her neighbor was receiving. Um, and before we get into the whole juicy saga, what you need to know is she filed this suit in December uh, the firm tried to get it thrown out on a technicality, and this week a Florida judge rejected that dismissal bid, and that's why the case is back in the news. Okay, so I see where we are now, and that is interesting because um, at least one judge said it could continue, so there's something to this, but we're not sure how much yet, but... Yeah, it's at least survived that initial like bid to get rid of it. I mean, there's always like explosive. I mean, there are explosive allegations in like any number of suits that are always filed. But this did clear a procedural hurdle. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. So why did the woman think a law firm framed her? That's just <laughs> I've, I don't think we've literally ever talked about something like this on Pro Se. We need to go all the way back to the 90s. So Great. hey. You don't have to twist my arm, Haley. <laughs> uh, such a good time. Uh, Perlmutter and her husband. Her husband, by the way, happens to be Marvel chairman Isaac Perlmutter. Oh, my. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> they moved to a residential community in Palm Beach, Florida in 1991. Now, according to the suit, the couple became friends with the community center's tennis center operator, who was a single mother of two children. Okay. which they, they wanted to emphasize in the suit. Yeah. So then in 2007, Canadian businessman Harold Pierenboom moved into the neighborhood. Perlmutter said that Pierenboom lodged incessant complaints about the community's shared amenities, in particular, the tennis center. And Perlmutter <laughs> said he even launched a campaign to get the tennis center operator fired. And that's the beef that ultimately led to the litigation that is underlying the litigation that we're talking about today. Okay. If I was going to guess about rich people arguments, I think I would have thrown in a tennis center. So, oh, yeah. you know, there's that. But neighbors do fight all the time. Like, that's true, no matter your socioeconomic status, I guess. And especially, well, you say no matter socioeconomic status, but especially in gated communities. I mean, they're people of means, first of all, so they can afford to sue people. Sure. But, okay, so you're talking about some kind of dispute centering around the tennis instructor and the tennis center within this gated Florida community. Now, where does it come into play? And again, this is like, whatever, 15 years ago. Where does the accusation of hate mail and like staged hate mail come into play? Great question. The hate mail started in 2012. That's when Pierenboom said that he began receiving these anonymous letters, um, they appeared once a month for nearly a year <laughs> and every couple months for several years after that. Now, this happened right after Pierre and Boom fired one of his attorneys, according to 
Perlmutter, of course. So she says that Piran Boom immediately suspected the terminated employee as being behind these letters. Okay. But he had his vendetta against her and her husband re the tennis center. So he allegedly concocted a plan to collect the Perlmutter's DNA to pursue claims against them and blame them for the hate mail. Uh, So she (laughs) said... Yeah, It just keeps getting... The details just keep getting more interesting. So she says that he and his then lawyer stole their DNA during depositions that they were taking in the litigation over the tennis center spat. And then after he retained Kasowitz, allegedly... The firm and him took a falsified DNA report to the Palm Beach Police Department. And that brings us to to this present litigation. So the Perlmutters have been cleared in all of that hate mail stuff. But now they're going after Kasowitz saying the firm actively participated in Piran Boom's illegal activity and began a public relations campaign to smear their reputation. (laughs) I mean, if any of this is true, this is going to make for a great movie. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it will. But I would imagine the Kasowitz firm is not happy about these allegations. Right? Yeah, it's a good assumption. But really, what we've seen up to this point is no, uh, no addressing of the merits. They're focusing on administrative stuff. So in the motion to dismiss here, the firm argued that Perlmutter filed her suit too early. They're saying, okay. well, technically... Kieran Boom could still appeal the final judgment in her favor in that underlying litigation. And so the she should have contested to... contested tennis center suit. <laughs> right. Different right. than this thing. Yes. So they're saying she should have to wait until after the deadline for appealing has come and gone. Okay. But the judge overseeing the case, his name is G. Joseph Curley. He said, nah, no appeal has been filed. Uh, waiting for an appeal to be filed could mean the statute of limitations runs out and Perlmutter won't be able to bring her claims at all. In his order, he was like, look, we'll cross this bridge when we come to it, if we come to it, but we're not going to worry about this right now. Like you haven't even, no one has appealed. So let's just, let's just keep going with this, which is, uh, you know, good news for everyone who wants to keep Watching this, everyone in the legal play news out. content game—that's for sure. <laughs> it's like the first Dune movie. I'm now all keyed up for the second movie. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have to keep tabs on this one. I begrudgingly start our final news story of the day. I kind of don't want to do it, but we have another crazy West Virginia story, and it is my official duty as a born and raised mountaineer to share it with the world. So thank you for your service, Amber. Thank you. Here's what it is. Um, A West Virginia state court judge overseeing an oil and gas royalty dispute brandished a handgun and pointed it at an attorney who'd previously tried to DQ him from the case. I know, guys. I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, judges pulling out guns in open court. We're always going to be on that beat, Amber. Yeah. Weirdly, this is a beat now. <laughs> yeah, it's a beat now. <laughs> um, we talked about this before. 
on episode is it 209, Steve? Do I have that right? That, no. it's That's correct. We looked okay, at it before anyway, the show. Okay, um, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> 209, uh, that was a Wisconsin judge. That had to do with like, there were like students and he was trying to show them something. This is quite different though. This is like in the midst of an adversarial court proceeding. It is. And yeah. he pulls in out a gun. In the heat of passion. The judge does. So tell us more about the facts because that's very pertinent here. The facts are really where it's at with this one. So yeah. this story I'm going to recount comes from attorney Lauren Varnado, who was based in Houston and was in a town called New Martinsville, West Virginia, for this oil and gas case. For all of my West Virginia geography nerds out there, that's a town near the Ohio border, if you want to know where it is. She submitted an affidavit to the West Virginia Judicial Investigators, and that's essentially what I'm going to talk about here. These are her allegations, so I right. just want to get that okay. disclaimer yep. out yep. there. During a closed-door hearing in March, Judge David Hummel Jr. berated her, waved his gun around, and then placed it on the bench <laughs> and turned it around to point in her direction. Oh, no. I know. I mean, what else can you guys say other than like, what? <laughs> really? Placing My the very gun honest on its side. And like, reaction. Spinning it around. I mean, it a classic. It paints a portrait, right? Yeah. This is in, this happens in The Rock, uh, the action movie, The Rock. Uh, he places it on a stool that has like a swivel seat. Yeah. Yeah. And you spin it around. That's, that, that leaps to mind. <sighs> sure. That's wild, I mean, if true. Again, allegations only. That's what we're talking about. Was there anything that precipitated this? I That's mean, a it's great a judge question. Pulling out a gun, yeah, yeah, because it's not out of the blue. So here's the context: um, there was quite a bit of buildup. So Varnado is one of a group of attorneys representing this oil and gas company EQT. It's like I said, a royalties dispute. The details of the case are really not that important, except this part. Back in 2021, EQT sought to have Judge Hummel and another state judge in um, a case disqualified. The EQT lawyers regarding Hummel said his family members have a financial stake in oil and gas interests in the county he presides over and also argued that he's the first cousin of a named plaintiff in a related federal proposed class action okay. over royalty payments against the company. And that's currently pending in West Virginia federal court. There's also another potential family connection that's a slightly more attenuated that is also related to some EQT litigation. So they had plenty of reasons they wanted this judge disqualified from their yeah, perspective. There were conflicts of interest. Yeah. Conflict of interest allegations here. Yeah. Yes. So West Virginia's highest court did bar the other judge, but not Hummel. And they didn't really give any reasoning in that decision. They just barred the other one, okay. not him, said he was okay. And so things did proceed. But obviously, if you try to DQ to the judge, Maybe some bad blood there and some contentious some, yeah, feelings. You know, they got beef, maybe. Yes. Yeah. So that's the big backdrop. But then there's also this weird detail. So the failed attempt to disqualify the judge is, you know, one thing. But Vernado and other attorneys from out of town are staying in West Virginia through the long duration of this trial and maybe going back and forth a bit, but spending a lot of time in the state. And she says, according to her affidavit, that she saw the judge with a handgun during a pretrial conference for a related case. And apparently the judge frequently wore a handgun in a holster on his hip during proceedings and intentionally kept his judicial robes unzipped so people, including the attorneys, <laughs> could see it. So I don't know. Well. But I, 
it seems like this attorney is purporting that that's an intimidation tactic. Mm. I don't know that the judge would characterize it the same way, right. but that's we're talking about allegations here. So the other thing Varnado said in this affidavit is that in the fall of 2021, while she's in a bar in West Virginia in the town where the courthouse is, a man came up to her, threatened her, and told her to leave the state. There's really not much more detail about if he was at all related to the judicial system or this was a random altercation, but it spooked her enough that her team hired a security detail. Those security guards were coming with her to court and to various things, um, just a precautionary measure on her part. But when we get to the gun incident, we're going to talk, we're going to, we've been talking about the security guards were barred from the courtroom on the day that the judge allegedly pointed the gun at her. Huh. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Let me just keep going. Um, it is a lot. So here's the day of part of the story. Yeah. Normally, the security detail came into the courthouse with Varnado, but on March 12th, Judge Hummel issued a trial counsel only order for one of the hearings in the case. During that hearing, the judge demanded to know why her team had been bringing security officers with them. She explained the security concerns which she had not previously brought to the court because it happened outside of the courthouse. And I just want to quote a little section of her affidavit to explain what happened next. So the judge, quote, stood up, opened his robe, pulled his gun out of the holster on his hip and held the gun in his right hand. As Judge Hummel reached for his firearm, he said, aren't me and my guns in security enough? My guns are bigger than your security's guns. Judge Hummel then set his gun down on the judicial bench and deliberately rotated the firearm as it laid on the bench until the barrel of the gun was pointing directly at me, end quote. Oh, my God. Amber. Yeah, I mean, it's wild. Amber, this is this may be a slight digression. Did anybody ever approach you in a bar in West Virginia and tell you to leave the state? <laughs> Guys, is that why you're in New Jersey Any time that I... Well, have I you just heard my accent any time I've talked to my mom this- or my sister... Well, no, I mean, they wouldn't do that to me. They know I belong there. Yeah. They hear it in my voice. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, sorry. Yeah, so, yes. Okay, so it is clearly not a typical day in court here. Right, uh, yeah, to um, say the least. I think that goes without <laughs> you know? saying. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I did just want to say, I mean, these are all allegations now. We're right. see what yes. happens. But I just want to give a flavor of sort of what the attorney did next because I'm sort of putting myself in her shoes. If what she says is actually factual and true, I'm not sure I'd know what to do. So here's what she did. She notified the FBI of the incident. Uh, She also, as I said, provided an affidavit to the West Virginia Supreme Court Judicial Investigation Commission. So two actions there to try to write what she sees as a pretty egregious action by this judge. We don't know exactly how these investigations are going at this stage. The FBI won't comment. Neither would that investigations commission. Right. Um, they wouldn't confirm or deny whether or not the judge is even being investigated. I think those kind of responses are fairly typical yeah. um, when something's ongoing like this. Hummel's office also, unsurprisingly, didn't respond to multiple tries by Law 360 to get any kind of comment. As for Vernado, the attorney, she said the whole incident was basically just the way we've reacted to it, that it's shocking. It's left her team very afraid. And it's just a lot to take in overall. So we're going to have to wait and see if the allegations are, in fact, corroborated and if there's any concrete actions taken against the judge.
like to end our show with something offbeat. I know it might seem superfluous today since we've talked about faking DNA on mail and judges brandishing guns. A lot of, lot of splashy stuff today. <laughs> a lot I just of said. splashy just, stuff. This is like page six of Law 360. This is very <laughs> Absolutely. Gossipy, juicy stuff. But I mean, even more it, so here. When it rains, it pours. Yeah. We have uh, one more incident of, I guess I'm on the beat of courtroom bad behavior today. So I want to give a hat tip to Above the Law. They reported on um, comments an attorney named Timothy Scott made on the record to opposing counsel <laughs> after losing a motion for non-suit in California Superior Court. Here's what the attorney said. This is a quote. I hope this doesn't sound unctuous, but just to end the weekend on a good note, I want to thank the court staff. I want to say to have a good weekend to Mr. Demaria. I want to say to have a good weekend to Ms. Fryrich. And I want to say to have a good weekend to both MTS counsel. I'll see you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. All right. Quite something to say that phrase twice at the end <laughs> of your statement in still open court. Uh, yeah, yeah. I would like to point out emphasis mine on the reading a little. I mean, I'm reading this from the page, but it's clear in the transcript. He did say it twice. Yeah. To two female attorneys, right? Yes, that's correct. The yeah. the counsel on the other side were two women. So the judge here had no idea that this was, I don't know what you want to call it, slang, a coded message, um, however you want to characterize it. He actually thought the attorney was wishing everyone a happy weekend. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It, for anybody out there that's maybe delightfully naive like this judge, which I do find sort of charming that he didn't catch on to this. <laughs> I guess the way to explain this, if if you haven't figured it out on your own, listeners, uh, see you next Tuesday. Just sound out the letters there. And I do not mean S-Y-N-T. Yeah. Um, so I think everybody he's, can put it together now. He's calling them the C word. I mean, yeah, let, let, I mean like, we can say that, right? Right. I'd like to refrain from the actual word because it's so insulting, especially yeah. to women. Um, but that was this attorney's point. People don't say that in polite company for a reason. Right. Um, At least not in America. I don't want to yeah. blow up producer Steve's spot, um, but he also didn't know what that meant, which I thought was very charming. I sort of love that. And speaks to his, like, beautiful mind. Being a good person? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To not I, even, like, you're such a good person, you don't even know what that means. Like, I know what it means. I wouldn't call someone that, but I do <laughs> right, know what it means. But you know what it is. And it's like sort of a snake eating the tail type of scenario. <laughs> but okay, so anyway, he's calling them the C word. He is. So the but this judge was not immediately not apparent to the judge. Right. The judge may not have gotten it. But opposing counsel definitely did. Like we said, it was two women on that side of the bench. So they shared with the judge the urban dictionary meaning of the phrase, which I think is also a funny little detail that they're I like, mean, you know what's definitive here? Let's show him this. Yeah, urban dictionary really coming through. Well, you know, where else would you get the definition, right? <laughs> yeah, the idea of, well, judge, here's also what a is. <laughs> Or means. Oh, Alex, uh, come if you on. just want to know. Uh, <laughs> now the idea of submitting dictionary. urban dictionary definitions to judges is is very funny. Opens up a yes. whole Pandora's box there. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah, yeah. So when the judge sees this, he immediately then has a meeting with the parties. And <laughs> Scott, the attorney who said it, he reveals that he definitely knew what he was saying. I guess he realized he was caught out and caught just in the lie act. about it. I mean, yeah. yeah. 
So, but here was his argument. He said he didn't think anybody else would catch on and that it was an inside joke with one of his colleagues. I thought the rest of you were just a bunch of idiots. Dum-dums who would never figure this out. And I'm so clever that I can insult these women with impunity. Don't worry about it. It's a really crazy defense to say, like, (sighs) to code the message. Sure. If you want to call it the C word, maybe just call it the C word. I mean, I wouldn't do that. But, like, if you want to, if that's that's what's in your heart, which it clearly is, (laughs) do it. But he's coding it. Knowing that it's coded and then saying, actually, I thought literally nobody would know what I was saying. He almost got away with it, Amber. The judge yeah, didn't know. I just, you know, the <laughs> guys, I'm just so disappointed yeah. in people. I don't know. I mean, yeah. that's my big takeaway here. But okay, so But when the judge was alerted, what happened? The judge was not happy. Um, yeah, no surprise here. The judge was pissed on so many levels. I mean, first of all, that is against all courtroom decorum and just being a good person. Well, but sure. also, it's insulting to the judge to think you can pull a fast one on a judge. So that's bad. Mm-hmm. That's the two-pronged thing of it. Sure. Like it's a, it's a clearly a, a crass thing to say, not an appropriate thing to say in any context, much less like a formal proceeding. But then also that you tried to deceive yeah. me on my bench. No respect for your co-counsel, no respect for the judge. So basically, no respect for... The law in general is how Mm -hmm. the judge took this. Okay, so the judge said, obviously, the conduct won't be tolerated. He called it reprehensible, the stuff you would imagine. And then I'm just going to give a quote from the judge. Yeah. It's not a joke to this court that Mr. Scott made this egregious and offensive insult intentionally to two female attorneys via a coded message. Mr. Scott not only attempted to deceive all counsel, but also this court into believing he genuinely was wishing everyone a nice weekend, when in fact he was purposely directing a derogatory epithet toward the female defense attorneys who had just prevailed in a non-suit in this case. So that's bad enough, right? The judge then says this to you and you're called out as this, you know, I mean, I, I try not to editorialize, but this guy's a jerk. So the judge called him out on it. but. The judge took it a step further. He also filed a discipline referral with the State Bar of California over this entire incident. That's wild. And listen, I mean, I don't know. Do we need do we need to tell anybody that you shouldn't uh, don't do do stuff like this in open court? I mean, (laughs) I wonder I mean, I wonder how coded it would have to be like, well, do you look at somebody and say, like, I'm doing Spider-Man pointing meme (laughs) and try and sneak it past the judge? That's less offensive, of course. I am going to go a way you're not going to expect. Okay. I think uh, if there's any men out there who are attorneys who are so offended that a woman beats them in court, that this is their gut reaction, go ahead and say it in court. I'd like to see them all disciplined by the state oh my. bars of the world. I mean, it just feels so directly sexist that I'm pleased he took this step so that we can get one guy sorted out at least. It's a good point. Yeah. I know I'm leaving us all on a very uplifting note for the end of the show, just my fervent anger as a woman. But, <laughs> but we have had a wild show. Hope everybody enjoyed it. And thanks so much for being with me, guys. I also want to thank a bunch of other people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our contributing reporters this week, Clark Mendock and Carolina Bellato, and music for our show that comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. 
If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That really does help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about any of these crazy stories, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.